Good morning. How are you this morning? Good? Good. The Christmas season usually begins for me when we do the, the toy distribution day for Huff Elementary School families, which was yesterday in this auditorium. It looked like Toys R Us threw up in here is what it looked like. It was amazing. It was organized. Um, Josh will tell you more about that uh, in the announcements later on, but I just wanted to say thank you for your generosity. If you could see the joy that was on those families' faces uh, with the presents they walked out with for their kids, some of them specifically came in looking for one thing, and it was here. And God was in all those details, and it was just such a cool day. So thank you for your generosity. Deeply appreciate it. Uh, One year for Christmas, my aunt gave me a present. When I opened it, it was this large, self-bound black book. And as I opened it up, I began to realize it was our family's history. She had started doing work in genealogy, and so for months, she just was digging up facts and information and people on our uh, family, and it was very interesting to me. She got a lot of great facts. Like, for one, I am a descendant of James McGuire. James McGuire was one of 31 rugged frontiersmen who blazed a trail through the Cumberland Gap with Daniel Boone and settled in new parts of the country in Kentucky, creating what eventually would become Fort Boonesboro. Uh, That was the first thing she told me. She was very proud of that fact, and I was interested enough that I pressed her for more details. Tell me more stories. Tell me about our family. And what I learned was this valuable life principle. If you shake your family tree hard enough, some nuts are going to fall out. You're going to learn things. You really don't want to know. My aunt was hesitant to tell me these things, but she eventually relented and did. Like, our family ancestors lived in Virginia and harbored fugitives, people who had conspired to kill President Lincoln. That's not a happy story, right? If you, if you press her further, she'd go all the way back to our first relatives who immigrated to America from England. With a last name like Bowman, I expected her to say that they were fearless archers who defended the king and the queen, right? Ah, they were horse thieves running away from being executed in England. This is kind of a messy family tapestry we're building here. Uh, It's just that way. My family, I learned talking with her more over the years, our family's not perfect. Our story isn't pretty even with my immediate family. You know, you look through my family, and you're going to find some really, really good people. You're going to find generous people, people of strong character, strong faith, who did a lot of good things in their life. But you're also going to find some really tragic stories of brokenness and alcoholism. You're going to find stories of betrayal and abuse. My family tree is full of knots just like yours. The Christmas narrative, and in fact, Matthew's entire gospel, begins with just that kind of a listing. It's a genealogy. It's Jesus' family tree. And for years, I would just skim over or lightly read those verses. And in my head, I'm going, they're just not interesting. There's just not much there. Why in the world would these be here? What's the point? Now, when I read it, I recognize the beauty in these lists of people. It is not a sanitized list. It hasn't been scrubbed 
Jesus' family tree is a lot like ours. Sprinkled in among the good and beautiful and wonderful people were murderers, evil kings, prostitutes, and religious outcasts. All of those were in Jesus' family tree. And with this scandalous list of characters, Matthew helps us capture just how fully human Jesus was becoming on that night in Bethlehem. When we really understand Jesus' family history, when we we begin to appreciate with a greater depth Matthew's words at the end of the genealogy when he says, Emmanuel, God is with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now, in spite of the enthusiasm and excitement I feel in the room, (laughs) I'm not going to read all the way through verse 17. We'll stop there with the genealogy. I know some of you would love to dig into this. You're like digging into your own family tree. You're one of those few people who like have helped turn Ancestry.com and the DNA research companies like 23andMe into a billion-dollar-a-year industry. That's not most of us. So I would suspect most of us are not that intrigued with just a list of names. We lose interest. We lose focus. We skim over them as we read the Christmas story. But it's important for us to recognize Matthew wasn't writing to people like us. He was writing to very ordinary first-century Jewish people. And these lists of names would have excited them for two reasons. First, for centuries, prophecies had been given and the Israelites had been expecting the Messiah to come. They had waited for him. They were praying for him. His hope, their hope was in him. And they would be excited because reading this genealogy directly tied Jesus to the lineage of David and help fulfill biblical prophecies about the Messiah. Second, for them, every one of these names triggered a story in their mind. Every child going to primary school would memorize these stories, know the insides and out of them. They were, some were noble, some were ignoble. Some were righteous, some were evil. Some were about a legacy of faith, and some a legacy of dysfunction. But what would have really snapped people's heads around with this genealogy was that Matthew broke with tradition. Matthew chose, when everybody else's genealogies was just listing the men, he listed five women in his genealogy. No reputable teacher did that. Matthew listed Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Why would he do that? Even in Luke's gospel, the only other place we find the Christmas story in Scripture, Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't do that. He goes all the way back from Jesus 
to, Ab- to Adam, and he doesn't list a single woman. Why, Matthew, why? Especially when this group of five includes two prostitutes. It includes women who were not of Jewish faith or bloodline. It included women of questionable and moral, questionable moral character. Why would he pull scandals of a historic proportion into the story of the birth of Jesus? One of the things that I love about Christmas is, among all the other things it's about, Christmas is a season of hope for broken and defeated people. That's the Christmas story. We don't like to think of ourselves as broken and defeated, but Matthew includes these women to help us understand just how much all of us have in common and how much all of us needed Jesus to come and save us. One of the women Matthew mentions is clearly the most broken and defeated of all. Her her name is Tamar. We're going to look at her story this morning as it's told in Genesis chapter 38. If you're a little sleepy this morning, this might wake you up. It's edgy. It is like HBO R-rated story that I've cleaned up to PG for Sunday morning. If you think the Bible is boring, read Genesis 38. It is far from boring. We're going to talk about Tamar. Uh, The great-great-grandson of Abraham was Judah. Judah had 12, uh, he he was one of 12 brothers in the family who later would become the 12 tribes of of Israel. Judah had an older son named Ur, E-R, and he was then married to Tamar. That's all basically we know about Ur is the marriage and this one verse that talks about him when the Bible says, Ur, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Wow. You get one verse in the Bible, and that's it. That's not great, right? Not a really uh, glowing epitaph for Ur. Not a good legacy. Following following Jewish culture, then, Judah arranged a marriage between Tamar and Ur's oldest brother, Onan. Judah said, Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Heads up, that's not the edgy part of the story. (laughs) Right? That's just weird. We don't do that. But it was their custom, their practice in Jewish culture. If that were a practice today, it would certainly make us pay attention to who our brothers married, guys. (laughs) Right? And for the women in the room, you would pay attention to what the family is like you're marrying into because more than we think today, you really are marrying the whole family. It's just weird. Motivated by greed, Onan marries Tamar but refuses to have children with her. And in what is quickly becoming a repeated pattern, the Bible says what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death too. This is, a, this is not a pretty scene. And when you read the passage for itself, you, you discover Judah, rather than accepting the obvious that this was judgment from God, he blames Tamar. Like, this is her fault that her husbands have died. And at this point, he's lost his two oldest sons. He's not willing to risk the third, and so he sends Tamar back to her father. 
sends her home to live. That was a disgrace. That was horrible for her. She went to live in her father's household under disgrace. Can you imagine what life was like for her at that point? She's a very young woman. She is already twice widowed, and she is sent back home. That's one of those bad family secrets we don't like to talk about. Her life has become a nightmare through no fault of her own. That's the kind of stuff, when it happens in a family, we work hard to cover it up and to recover from. Some families choose just to keep stories like that silent. It's not the kind of story we want to bring up in polite company. And yet Matthew has chosen to put Tamar into the storyline of Jesus' birth. Why? Skip down a few verses and read on, and this story goes from bad to worse. Tamar then tries to assume control of her legacy. She is in a year-long period of mourning where she would wear black clothes and everyone would know she was in mourning. But she hears that Judah, her father-in-law, is heading to a town near her on a business trip. So she takes off her mourning clothes. The Bible says she dresses up like a prostitute. And she sits at the gate of the city looking for Judah. Judah comes up to the city gate. He has no idea that this woman is his daughter-in-law. He recognizes she's dressed as a prostitute. And so he propositions her believing that she is a prostitute. And it's easy here to start seeing the roots of the evil that were present in Judah's sons, Ur and Onan. Since Judah has no way to pay this prostitute, they strike an agreement. He gives her his staff, his walking stick, and his personal seal. I just want to clarify, this was not a family pet. Okay? Not that kind of seal. Family seal was... For each individual male, they would have a piece of stone or they would have a metal cylinder that was hollow. There would be a cord that would run through it. They'd wear it around their neck. And on it would be etchings and inscriptions that were unique to that person. And so when you were doing a legal document in that day or you were sending a very personal letter, you would put wax on it and you would roll your seal through it and it functioned as your signature, your pledge in an agreement. So a staff and a seal were extremely personal, unique items. The Bible says Judah gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she got pregnant. Tamar's not an innocent player in her story any longer. She not only got pregnant, she had twin boys, Zira and Perez, of whom Jesus was a direct descendant. You think about those two boys for a minute. What was it like to grow up with that being your story? There's no sappy, sweet story about how your parents got married and how they got engaged and all those things we like to talk about. Nothing. Think about the social stigma. Can you imagine being like a six-year-old kid going to school and your friend walks up and you go, "So, so help me understand this. You're father is actually your grandfather? Really? 
And if you trace people who practice this, they eventually moved to America and settled in Arkansas. That's their... <laughs> but this is just a horrible situation. Sometime later, Judah remembers he hasn't paid this prostitute and his goods are still in her possession. Rather than tell his family and incur the shame, he grabs a friend, pulls him aside, he sends this good friend to try to find this woman, pay her, and get his seal and his staff back. The friend goes, and he can't find her. And rather than bring all of this shame on himself and risk an exhaustive search that would bring humiliation to him and his family, he just decides to let it go. I'm not going to worry about it. We'll just leave it with her. And he almost gets away with this business trip indiscretion, except... Three months later, Judah's told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Well, Judah instantly gets all judgy and self-righteous about this. He invokes the full extent of the law and says to them, find her, bring her out, and burn her to death. Uh, Honestly, there are hints of Judah in our reactions sometimes. Not the burning thing. But that sense of somebody's wronged me or something done something that hurts me, I want them to get the maximum penalty. I want them to feel the hurt that I've felt. And the last thing we want to offer to them is grace. Now Tamar hears Judah's plan and she sends a message to her father-in-law. This is brilliant. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Recognize them? Reality smacks Judah in the face. He has wronged Tamar by blaming her. He has wronged her by sending her home. He wronged her by blaming her for everything that happened. It was wrong of him to sleep with her. And what's really apparent is how much he simply devalued her because as he slept with her, he didn't even recognize it was his daughter-in-law. Viewing these items presented to him, he relents. He comes clean on his sin and he literally says, she is a more righteous person than I am. Without a doubt, this is one of the most messed up stories in the Bible. And here's the crazy thing. It's part of Jesus' heritage. It's a story that Matthew chooses to include in the Christmas story. How in the world does this bring joy and hope with the birth of the Messiah? Why do we need to know this? I think Matthew includes it in the Christmas narrative simply for that reason, to offer us hope that no matter what's happened in our life, no matter the choices we have made in our past, no matter what we've done, God is greater than any past sin in our life. Tamar is a beautiful example of that. There are sins everywhere in her story. Sins made by her first two husbands, sins by her, sin by her father-in-law. There is enough sin to go around in this family. But God's plan for Tamar was greater than any sin in their lives. And it proves to us that God is able to use broken sinful people to do amazing things. We don't get to track Tamar's story. She kind of fades out of view 
after this, and the focus turns onto her sons. But through them, we can see the turn that took place in all of their lives. We see enough to know that her life changed. God began to bless her two sons. They became good people. They became godly men, and they led their families with integrity, an integrity that changed the course of their family history. Perez would become successful. He would move away to this little town called Bethlehem. And four generations later, his descendants would give birth to a godly man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. It's helpful for us to take this genealogy and to see a 42-generation perspective on Tamar's life to zoom out and get the bigger picture. Tamar's life is evidence of the fact that God does not define our life or our worth by our mistakes. He doesn't give up on us when we sin and when we struggle. Tamar's story is evidence that God is bigger than anything in our past or our present. Tamar gives us hope that no matter where we are, God can redeem our story. Do you believe that? And who is it in your life that keeps you rooted in that grace and redemption and forgiveness that God offers? Who helps you keep that perspective on your life? Who encourages you when you screw up? When you wound people you love? Who is it in your life that when you get all righteous and judgy and want to inflict that on someone that's hurt you helps you choose grace? been following Jesus for over 50 years in my life. And I know that I still need people like that in my life. That need gets greater, not less, with every year. When I mess up, when I make mistakes, when I willfully or intentionally sin, when all I can see is the wrong I've done and the hurt that it's caused, it's so prominent in my vision. I need people around me who will encourage me that God can redeem even that. We all need that. Those kinds of friendships aren't simply discovered. You can't walk into church on Sunday morning and meet someone and instantly that that kind of a person. Those friends are developed over time with investments into each other and trust built. It takes a while for us because we're guarded to open up and talk about the Tamar-like events that are in our lives. It takes time to discover if someone is going to speak truth to us in love. For me, over the last 30 years, I have consistently found those relationships in community groups, whether it's a couples group or a men's group. That's where I find those people. That's where those relationships are built because we develop more than just a friendship. Together, we seek God's best for each other, and together, we are doing our best to follow Jesus every day. Community helps us move beyond an intellectual understanding of who God is and what grace is. And community helps us live it out with full faith and confidence that God is bigger than any mistakes we ever made or will make in the future. Those kinds of relationships shift our focus. When we begin to live with a new perspective on life, it helps us realize that a life with God is less about our past and more about what we choose next. What we've done in our past, what others around us in our family have done, it is 
a part of our story. It's helped shape us, for good or bad, into the person that we are today. But we are more than a sum of our experiences and choices through our life. We are more than the sum of our family heritage. Through God's grace and through God's power, we can change. Tamar and the other women listed in Matthew 1 are there to hammer that point home. Four of the five lived a sketchy past, but they each one reached a moment where they made choices. Each of these women chose something better, and it changed the arc of their story. I mean, look, even the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Paul had to keep this forward focus in his life, choosing what's next, because his past was really dark. He was responsible for the death of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians as a bounty hunter. That's dark. But here's what Paul says that he did every day. Forgetting forgetting the past and looking toward what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us to. Real change happens when we live that out. When every single day we work to know Jesus better and become like him. We work to follow him better than we did the day before. And by God's grace, those little decisions we make every day over time change the arc of our story. One day, one choice at a time. The hope we find in Christ the hope that came to us at Christmas is not the choice, is not the hope that we are going to live a perfect life. It's not possible. It's not a realistic goal. And every one of us knows that deep in our hearts. We are imperfect. We are broken. And we recognize that in some ways, each one of us owns a few of those knots in our family tree. But what we also know is we have hope because of Jesus. And we can live with the fact that we're imperfect and broken, even the best of us, because we know that day by day our story is being redeemed. And so we choose to live in grace rather than wallow in guilt. And we choose to extend grace rather than justice. And as we do, Every day, we begin to understand deeper and deeper, and we live more profoundly in the truth expressed in that simple phrase at the end of the genealogy where Matthew says, God is with us.